Hello and welcome back to Chasing Perfection, a UConn women's basketball podcast. We've got three games to talk about, a milestone for Gino Ariama, and the last big test before the NCAA tournament coming up this weekend on Super Bowl Sunday. We'll start with the most noteworthy of accomplishments, though. Gino Ariama became the third college basketball coach to reach 1,200 wins with a comfortable victory over Seton Hall on Wednesday night, joining Tara Vanderveer, who's the all-time leader, and Mike Krzyzewski, who's number two since retired. This week, I finally learned how to spell Mike Krzyzewski, and I feel really dirty and gross. <laughs> I'm impressed that you were able to pronounce it, because honestly, I don't know that I would have been able to pronounce his name correctly. <laughs> I don't know how any of those letters make sense together. I was thinking about those Duke writers that had to spell his name Oof. for however long he was there, 40 years. Like we have it pretty lucky with how easy the names are to spell, but yeah, I'm not proud of myself for that fact. I'm hoping my brain forgets it in the next week or so when I don't have to write out those two names constantly, but he's also the first coach. Gino is the first coach to do it all at one school. Coach K was at, Army before Duke, Tara Vanderveer started at Idaho and Iowa, Ohio State. Very, I don't think we talk about how, enough how random Tara Vanderveer's journey is, where born in Massachusetts, then started her head coaching career at Idaho, then went to Ohio State, and then ended up at Stanford. That's, there are not many lines through those four places. No, <laughs> very interesting journey, but. It worked for her, I guess. It did. It did. So she's the all-time leader. Gino got there the fastest in a matter of years. I think it was three years faster than Coach K and six years faster than Tara Vanderveer. He doesn't think he's ever going to become the wins leader. Tara is six or seven wins ahead of him right now. Coming into the year, I thought they would have had a pretty good shot at matching or at, at catching up because... UConn looked like it had a juggernaut and Stanford looked like it was going to take a step back and neither of those two things happened for various reasons. I also don't think Tara is going to retire anytime soon considering she just straight up doesn't work in the summer and takes the whole summer off. That's one way to keep going. Yes, it's a round number and people love round numbers, but becoming the third coach to get to just some arbitrary mark number of wins, I don't think it it's worth mentioning and it's worth recognizing but i think kind of the way gino approached it like he more or less has shrugged his shoulders at it the last few weeks and has said various things along the lines of you know i'm i hope my program is going to be remembered more for the 11 national championships that we won rather than the number of games i won and that's kind of how i feel about it too i think it's great it's good good for gino he deserves it but at the end of the day it's it's just a number that we picked out of the air. Yeah, I kind of agree. Like, yeah, it's like rare company, but everyone already knows that Gino is one of the best to ever coach and like is in rare company. You don't really need this number to say that. So I agree. I think that the, you know the champions speak championships speak a lot more about what this program has done than the twelve hundred wins. Yeah, and even eleven not eleven, a thousand wins, like that feels a lot more significant because a thousand is a lot. And 
I have no recollection of getting to 1100. I know it's happened, obviously. <laughs> it's happened recently. Yeah. Like, Paige Beckers was on the team when that one happened. But I couldn't tell you what year that was. It was that their freshman year during COVID. Is that why there wasn't much hubbub about it and my brain just doesn't remember anything? I, I think there's a solid chance he gets to 1,300. That would be, what, another three, three and a half years? Mm -hmm. Assuming he keeps winning 30 games a year, 30-plus games a year. Like, maybe that one's more noteworthy because he's going to be the first one to get to 1,300 in, in theory, but... I just, I think it's just nice to, it, it's the, it's a saying of give the people who deserve their flowers. Oh man, I'm butchering this. Give people their <laughs> flowers while they're still around. That's, that's the right. phrase. And I think that's what this is nice for. It's always nice to have Gino be a little reflective and talking about where the programs come from, because it's not like he's taking over. He took over somewhere like even Stanford to use Tar as an example, where like that's an athletic department known for championships. I think they have the most national championships overall of any school, or maybe they're behind UCLA. But the stories that he tells about when they got there, about the leaking roof, and they didn't have their own offices, and they had to teach PE classes, and they had 142, I believe, people at their first game. Like it really came out of nowhere. So the fact that it's gotten this big is really remarkable. And I think that's the part worth celebrating and just appreciating at these milestones more than the milestone itself. Yeah, I agree. It's so much of what this program is, is Gino and NCD as well. Cause she's been there for all of it too. And yeah, when you think about what he talks about in terms of where it started from, it's kind of remarkable how far it's come. And even his story too of how he became the greatest coach to ever be on a college basketball sideline some immigrant kid from italy growing up in the suburbs of philadelphia i still don't totally understand where gino got his basketball knowledge from and where he developed <laughs> this great basketball mind that remains a giant mystery to me <laughs> But just the fact his backstory, too, is such an unlikely one. It wasn't like, you know, Dan Hurley, I think, is a great mm -hmm. example of just the other side of that. His dad is this Hall of Fame coach, and him and his brother have both been really successful in their basketball careers doing what they do. And it's not like Dan Hurley came out of nowhere, and that's not to take anything away from what he's doing because he's the best coach in the country on the men's side, and I have no doubt about that, the way this men's season is going. But Gino really did come out of nowhere, and UConn was his first head coaching job. He'd only coached at the Division One level at two other places. So that, just to repeat what I've said a few times, is what's really incredible about getting to these achievements. Yeah, I agree. Slight sidebar, because I mentioned the, the first game. Did you see the first episode of Sue's Places with Gino? I haven't yet. I want to watch it. I've seen, obviously, like the clips and the photos on Instagram, and I need to sit down and watch it. It's genuinely one of the funniest things I've ever watched. <laughs> like, Sue's good in it. It's not a knock on Sue, but Gino is just so good. The way he's coaching the cows, and... <sighs> 
hearing from the players like yeah no the cows were getting the same things we get like all that sounds <laughs> familiar it was so funny it was so good and yeah one of the best things that i've watched in a long long time do we know how many episodes there's supposed to be of this because it was just the first one right that's out so far yeah i don't know i would guess somewhere in the range of like 10 15 maybe okay I have like a theory that I have no backing for that Ted Lasso is going to be in one of them, and that's how they're suddenly seem to be best friends. <laughs> Wasn't he in the trailer? Oh, oh he was. Yeah. Clearly, I did zero attention. So yeah, he's going to be in one. <laughs> I was like, yeah, he's well, in the trailer and the intro. Never mind. I, I haven't. I haven't even seen the trailer. So oh, we're wow. Well, that's a good here. theory then. If you really haven't seen it, that's a, that's a heck of a theory. <laughs> Yeah, he's he's in the trailer. They're at Kansas. He's wearing a Kansas sweatshirt, which is probably how ah. she ended up at Kansas for that game. Where it's got to be, you know, uh, what's his face? James Naismith, like, coached at Kansas. Or maybe it's, like, the history yeah. of Kansas. But whatever it is, yeah, I'm pretty sure that's what he's in there gotcha. for. And he was in the promotional sense. video for it, too. All of it. Yeah, I've clearly been living under a rock for the last like week with my day job. <laughs> it's okay. Once February hits, <laughs> it it really turns into a bit of a grind. This is the yeah. the part of the season you got to push through because once you get to March, it's March. Right. But right this now, this is the dog days of the stretch. season. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Well, okay. Yeah. Well, I guess I did not come up with any revolutionary ideas that, that no one didn't know. Everyone was already aware that Tulsa was going to be in it. It's okay. You came up with it on your own. That's all that matters. <laughs> but I think everyone is tired this time of year, and uh, the team too, because their first game after losing to Notre Dame at Villanova, I thought they looked tired that game and there's a difference between looking tired and playing tired. In that first half they played tired and they didn't have much energy and it showed with how close that game was. And then the second half they still looked tired, but they didn't let that impact their effort. And there was a point in the game in the first half where Meg Como on SNY mentioned how every single bounce seemed to be going Villanova's way. And I think in part that was just because Villanova was getting itself in better spots in the second half. Suddenly, UConn cranks up the effort and the energy level, and those bounces stop going Villanova's way. And I'm not concerned about it. I think we've seen over the two games since then that the energy and tiredness isn't really an issue. It could have just been a hangover from the Notre Dame game. It certainly doesn't look like it's going to be last year where the wheels really fell off in February. Yeah, exactly. They've managed to take care of business still, and I think that's important, especially in you know a road game at Nova, which, yeah, Nova's not what they were last year, but it's still not an, an easy win um, to get. And I think especially we're going to talk about it, but the way they defended Lucy Olsen in that second half was really good. So they're finding ways to kind of, even if they're tired, and I think that's natural. I think we're seeing it in a lot of teams. If you look at the results of the last couple of weeks, at this point in the season, but they're finding ways to still take care of business against the teams they need to take care of business against. Gino also mentioned after that game how the way Villanova defends, they make you make a lot of decisions with the ball, and that's just very difficult to play against. And he thought that it could have affected their young guys especially, because we know how reliant this team is on the kids. 
they could have gotten a little shell-shocked by it just because they haven't played it, and that's why he thought they were going to be a tough out in the NCAA tournament because they're going to end up playing some team that hasn't seen them before, and they might not have Matty Segrist, but they if they still have that defense, they still have a really good player, Lucy Olsen. That's what makes them really tough, according to Gino, and I think we kind of saw that bear out because that first half, Villanova played it completely on their terms. It was slow. UConn wasn't getting out in transition. It was just a a slog. And once that second half started, they started to play it on their own terms. They sped the game up. They didn't really get more fast break points, but they started to push the ball a little more. And they got the ball up the court quicker, and they just made everything happen a little faster. And once they did that, Villanova started to unravel just enough that UConn was able to pull away. So it's just... There's so many teams in the Big East. Every single week when I'm writing a preview against a Big East team, I go on her hoop stats, and there's lots of green, and there's lots of gray, and then there's just a dark red number <laughs> next to the pace of every single one of these teams. They just all play so slow and so deliberate that it's really on UConn to control the pace and to just keep it moving. And I think we even saw that a little bit against... Seton Hall yesterday, not to jump ahead, but there was this one moment where there was a defensive sequence, and I think Seton Hall might have scored, but right after the ball went in, Gino, right to KK, started saying something and clapping his hands, and KK got the ball and just flew up court, almost like it was a fast break, even though Seton Hall was already getting back, so... They really need to be in control of the pace. They need to play their own game and not let the other teams do what they want to do because that's when they can get in trouble. Other teams are going to be a lot more comfortable in that half court. UConn's better than it was last year, but they're still at their best when they're playing fast. They're in transition, and they get a lot of lanes and openings in the defense to cut to the basket or get shots when they can move the ball up the court. I think we've seen that that pace is one of the areas where they have so much strength. And then when they're speeding up the other team, it forces the other team to make the mistakes that UConn likes to capitalize too. And it just, things tend to go their way when they're controlling the pace of the game. And it's also all about the defense. Lucy Olsen kind of got what she wanted in that first half. She had a little bit of time in foul trouble, but having not seen her play, I thought it's really impressive how she can get into the lane she can score from a lot of different uh, let's let's use the football term with the Super Bowl coming up. Quarterbacks have those off-platform throws. She has a lot of off-platform shots that are just really impressive. It's really tough to defend her when she gets to the spots that she wants. And the second half, I think she scored the first basket of the second half for Villanova, then would shut out the rest of the way, so a, a really impressive defensive adjustment for UConn pretty much right out of the half and an overall really good defensive performance, especially considered coming off Hannah Hidalgo going off. And we've seen a lot of other guards have really good nights against UConn for them to make those corrections and fix it in order to shut her down. I think that was a really, really big step for this team. Agreed. And just to have a game where they shut a player like that down because you know, maybe she's not at the same level as Hannah Hidalgo, but she is one of the better guards of the country this season. And they were really able to just collapse on her and not let her her do what she wanted to do. And they get another shot at that again. I think 
late February, early March, they still have Nova one more time. So it'll be good to see if they can do it again then. Yeah, this week was really just three teams that they had different tests that they needed to pass. And it was Lucy Olsen against Villanova. St. John's, Gino talks a lot about the way they operate on offense, and he thinks they're one of the toughest offenses to defend, just by the way Joe Tartamella draws things up. They do pretty well with that. Nika Mule shuts down Unique Drake again. And then we saw when they went down to Seton Hall last month, that was a really physical game, and they handled it pretty well, but you always want to see how this team can do physically. And it wasn't as physical this game, and the refs certainly inserted themselves. But the Big East doesn't have the the high caliber of teams this season. There's no Villanova from last year with Maddie Seagrass, where they hosted in the first round. And even Creighton's been struggling recently. Marquette has been up and down a little bit. But where they lack that high-end talent, I think a lot of the different teams make up for it in being good enough very few of these teams are just actively bad while also having something that UConn has to deal with. It's not like Tulane in the AAC or Tulsa, where as long as UConn showed up, rolled out of bed, they were going to win and there was nothing that was going to challenge them that game because it was, it was an easy win as long as they were there. Whereas yes, the big East is not a power conference, but there's enough variety and enough, stress that these teams are going to put on you as best they can with the players that they have that UConn's seeing a lot of different looks every single night and we're seeing over these last three games that it's not necessarily easy they were making it look easy at the start or at the end of December and the start of January but conference play isn't supposed to be easy and they're still coming away with pretty comfortable wins it's not like any of these have been nail biters Exactly. And while you don't have those, you know, the teams like the caliber of Nova, I mean, Creighton and Marquette are firm tournament teams. Nova and even Seton Hall is kind of sitting a little bit in that, like, at least group of teams that you call bubble. I think they're probably towards the bad side of that bubble and that they're not going to get in, but like, they're, they're still in that bubble group. So they're seeing levels of competition that they're going to see in March. They're not all easy games. Yeah. To narrow in on St. John's a little bit, Aaliyah Edwards sets a career high with 33 points, first time she's ever gotten over 30 points in her career. She was unstoppable, and I want to mention her a little bit more later, but I thought what was really good about that St. John's performance is we saw why having both Aaliyah Edwards and Paige Beckers is so important, because Paige got off to a little bit of a rough start, and wasn't necessarily playing up to the level that she has been but Aaliyah carried the load and then Aaliyah hit a little bit of a rough patch she needed just a basket I think to tie her career high or to set her career high and she missed five in a row including a pair of free throws that would have at least tied it yet right when she started to falter that's when Paige came alive in that game she took over she scored a handful of points in a row and it was just a really nice sequence of when one's not going, the other one steps up and helps up and helps. So, yes, you would like both of them going at the same time, but at the very least, you can't have both of them have full off nights. And we've seen each of the last two games that they both can at least contribute 
when the other one's not going. We haven't seen a point where it's been neither of them. And right now in Big East play, that's good enough. And, you know, it, it should continue to build heading towards March. Agreed. I also think it seems like Aliyah's kind of unlocked a new level over these last few games. I mean, like you said, the career high in points, 33 points, I think is, we've seen her be really good, but we haven't seen her be that level of dominant in her career. So I think that's a really good sign for this team going forward as well. If she's playing kind of at that level alongside Paige playing at the level we know she can play at, like that's a, a really, really hard duo for any team in the country to go up against. Yeah, it's been something different with Aaliyah over these two games, but for a little while now, she, she got off to that slow start, but I thought a quote after the St. John's game that she had was really interesting about how this is the time of year you just lock in and got to execute, and it seems like that mindset's really helping her, and it's taking her game to a new level. We saw it against Seton Hall. She had 18 points, but that wasn't the most impressive part of her performance. It was the 20 rebounds, and... Nine of them in the first half, or first quarter, 13 of them by the half. In the first quarter, I think we were like three minutes in, and I was like, man, it feels like Aaliyah's already got a lot of rebounds. And I click over to the stats page, and she has five, and I, I'm sitting next to Megan at the XL Center, and I lean over and I say, wow, Aaliyah already has five rebounds. And as I'm saying that, she grabs a sixth. Then a few minutes later, I'm like, wow, Aaliyah's up to eight. And then immediately, never mind, it's nine now. She was all over the boards, and they were strong rebounds. There was one time where Seton Hall came down the floor and Aaliyah went out to to contest a three-pointer and the ball hits off the rim, comes up in the air, and the next thing, Aaliyah's back in rebounding the ball. It was... I, I have to go back and see how she got from where she was to go rebound that, but she was attacking the glass and that phrase gets overused, but she was genuinely attacking the glass. It was really impressive. 18 and 6. You will take that every single night. And Gino said kind of sarcastically, like, yeah, 33 points, 13 rebounds. We'll take that from Aaliyah. But it's. We've seen her play at an All American level for generally two years now. There's been the ups and downs. February last year, the start of this season, it hasn't been a smooth line. But at the very least, she's been realistically at the level of being that third team All-American, not good enough to push herself up into either the WBCA teams or first or second teams that would get her on the wall. But the way that she's playing right now, I am not sure there are many players in the country performing at higher level guards or bigs, including Paige Beckers. This has been Aaliyah's team for a few games now. And if that level of dominance can continue and she's really truly unlocked something then we can we might have a little bit of a different conversation with this team heading into march yeah i agree i think we've already always known that that you know her plus page is this really really good combo but if only is playing at this level it is it's a different ball game for this team and i think what their their ceiling looks like when you get to march on the flip side, though, what have you thought about Paige? Because ever since that Notre Dame game, it seems like she's been in a little bit of a rough patch, and she's still figuring out how to get these points. It's not like she's been shut out or she's been miserable or she's been actively hurting the team. She's just taken a step back from being the world beater that she was a few weeks ago, 
And I think the Seton Hall game, again, kind of summed up the way things are going. She was getting plenty of open shots in that first half, and they just weren't falling. And she was getting frustrated. Then in the second half, Seton Hall made a little bit of a run, got within 13, and then it almost felt like Paige just decided she had enough. And she just, once that first shot fell, you knew the rest were coming. And I think it was four in a row at one point. Nine points in that quarter. Good night, Irene. But what do you make of Paige over the last week and a half or so? Yeah, I mean, it certainly hasn't been the best we've seen her play. Like, I think in, in January or early January and kind of right after the holidays, she was playing at this level where she looked like clearly the best player in the country that hasn't necessarily came through in the last handful of games. But I think you also have to remember that like, she's still coming off a major injury. And like, I don't know that we can still like, she's kind of certainly reached that level, but I don't know that we can expect she's just going to constantly be at that level a hundred percent of the time. But I also am like not overly concerned. Like, I feel like she's got, this is a good time for her to have like the slump, right? Like you don't want this to happen in March. Let it happen now. Yeah. I think another part of it is this is the first truly full season that she's played in her entire career. Her freshman year, she played five more games than she currently has at this point in the season because the shortened COVID year, she missed that one game with the ankle injury after Tennessee, but She's never had to go through an entire complete full season where you have like there's there's such a cadence to the season that I think we're attuned to because we've been around it for a while. But you kind of get through the first part of the season and everyone's really figuring it out through the holiday break. And then you come from that and, you know, you, you adjust after the time off and then you start to figure out who you are and. January and a lot of teams play really good basketball in January. Then you got to push through this February tiredness. We're feeling it. I'm sure the players are, the coaches are. And her freshman year, it was starting in December. Then I believe they had a sh shutdown during the season, if I'm not mistaken, or they ha at least had games canceled. And right. it's, it's just so different than it is now. And you push through this and then you get to the tournament, the conference tournament, and that's its own thing. Then you get the 10 days off and it's the NCAA tournament. And no one has trouble getting up for that one, unless your name is Corey close. So it's, I think it's also just a learning process. She's games played wise, kind of like a sophomore. This is her first real season. She's coming off injury Paige Beckers has been at UConn for forever, but she hasn't been playing games at UConn for forever. And it's really easy to forget that. But yeah, I'm I'm not hitting the panic button by any means. She'll be fine. She'll figure it out. But it just will be nice for her to get back on track because if Aaliyah is playing the way she is and they can get Paige back to where she was, yeah, all of a sudden this team is going to start having those 30-point blowouts again, and it takes a lot of the pressure off Ashlyn Shade, who had a really good game against Seton Hall and has generally been pretty good. K.K. Arnold, who's hit a little bit of a freshman wall. Nika. Caden Samuels, who's still up and down ice. It takes pressure off of everyone else because when those two are going, everyone else can just slide it, and whatever they do to help helps. Speaking of Ashlyn Shade, just a very random fun fact, she's missed one free throw this year. 
17 of 18. Not like that's a ton, but still pretty incredible. I think that would be the second highest in program history. Yeah, especially considering she's an freshman. A freshman, that's really impressive. Anyways, looking ahead, the non-conference schedule wraps up Sunday, Super Bowl Sunday, at number one undefeated South Carolina. ESPN, 2 p.m. It's not going to be quite the matchup we expected, though. As has been rumored for a little bit, South Carolina is without Camila Cardoso, their leading scorer, their leading rebounder, six foot seven, potential like listed at six foot seven. She might even be taller than that. It, it gives UConn a better chance to win. That's undeniable. But this game is not a make or break game for UConn. It's not like if they win this, they're in the tournament, and if not, they're out. And even still, if they win this game close like let's say it's a two or three point win comes down to the wire what does that look like in the committee's eyes when cardoso's not there so i it it's still a really good test i think we'll know kind of what south carolina looks like tonight when they play mizzou tonight being thursday if they struggle without her then i think it's a really different story but they still could be fine and kind of dominate and it doesn't really matter but this game is all about figuring out where UConn stands. UConn hasn't had a opportunity to... Well, it has. It had Notre Dame, but... You know, it didn't measure itself because <laughs> it didn't play up to the level that it could. Right. But this is its last chance to measure itself before the NCAA tournament. And you're not playing a team at full strength. And... Uh, post-game St. John's... It wasn't necessarily on the record, but Gino heard about the uh the the news about cardoso and made a comment along the lines of our players aren't going to be happy so the players want this too you want to be able to challenge yourselves against the best there's nothing on the line here besides showing what you can do so it kind of sucks that cardoso is not playing yeah i think it takes a lot of the steam out of this matchup and a matchup that just would be one of the more anticipated non-conference matchup of the season anyway but not having her it takes a lot out of this i mean it's just such a big part of what they do you can still learn plenty about where it's at from this game but yeah i mean you play them with her that's the number one team of the country that you're measuring up against it you get a really good idea of where you're at from that game but they're still going to get plenty of challenges in this i mean even without cardoso i think south Ghana even has more size than anyone that UConn's seeing. Like, Aaliyah's going to get tested. Their guards have been such a big part of their success this year. So, like, that's going to test UConn. There's there's plenty for them to learn without her in the game. Yeah. On one hand, yes, you'd like to have Cardoso, but it's also a kind of nice preview for a lot of teams that UConn might play in the NCAA tournament where Mm – They've got size that's not overwhelming, but they just have multiple players that have size. Chloe Kitts, Fagan. I mean, those are really the only two bigs that play a ton. But still, if those two are in the game at the same time, how does UConn match up with that? Because you know Aaliyah can take one of them. Do they put Paige on the other? Do they double the other one with Paige? Do they do the thing where Paige defends the other big and they know that whatever points they get, Paige is going to make up for on the other side? The guards, we've seen UConn struggle with good guard groups, so how do they match up to that? Because South Carolina's got a really, really good group. How does UConn come in with a game plan? Are they going to try and make South Carolina go inside and beat them inside? 
and then try and hit a lot of threes to make up for it. So it's still an exciting game to look forward to. It's still one that I think UConn can just see how it does against one of the better teams in the country. But yeah, it's not that uh, this is the undisputed number one team in the country. We'll, we'll again, we'll know better after Mizzou because they're still probably going to be pretty good. But if if they win this game, it takes a little bit out of it because, yeah, they didn't have Cardoso. And if they lose, then you still don't really have a great grasp of where you stand against a team like that. So either way, I mean, regardless of what ends up happening this game, you're praying that you don't see him again this season. Right, exactly. It does feel like kind of a low-stakes game without her, though. I think there's not going to be that much of an implication. I think, you know, one of their guards goes off and you lose. You just saw the same thing that you've kind of seen in every big game this season. I don't think it's going to affect their seeding that much. You win. It helps you a little bit. Cardos is not in it. So I don't think they're going to, you know, jump to the one-seed line because they win it without her. But it's a low-stakes game, but it allows you to from that perspective, but like it still teaches you kind of a lot about where they're at. How do you see it playing out on Sunday? If it was at UConn, I would feel like they were going to win. It's a little harder. I mean, it's a hard place to play on the road, right? Like it's, it's not going to be an easy game. I go back and forth. Part of me is like that Notre Dame loss is still kind of fresh. So they're probably going to come out with a bit of a vengeance and, if Aaliyah's playing the way she has been the last few games, maybe they do get the win, but I don't know. I could see it going either way. I don't think they win, just what I've said before, where I, I simply don't think they have enough to play mm-hmm. with a lot of these teams, and they're just going to run out of options. But I think they they make it a competitive game. It's probably one of those games where it's close for three quarters and then South Carolina pulls away at the end to a 10 or so point win. Maybe not all that unlike last year. I think what I want to see though in this game is show a little bit of fight after getting embarrassed by Notre Dame. Like just have that compete, stay in it. If it's a back and forth game for three and a half quarters and then South Carolina pulls away, I'd be fine with that because the previous losses have been very back and forth where you're good the first and third or the second and fourth, but you're terrible those other two quarters. If they could just be a little more even keel, keep it close, and yeah, Paige and Aaliyah play well and the freshmen have an off night, then you kind of shrug your shoulders and move on because that's how it goes. And it's going to be important for those freshmen to play in a hostile environment they've done it a few times with well i mean kind of crazy to think ashland didn't even play against nc state and now mm-hmm. she's she's just indispensable but texas this is going to be another chance so i i think i'm more focused on what we see from this team more so than the result but i don't think them pulling off a win is totally out of the question. I could see them having just putting it all together. We've seen how good this team can be when they're on their game. Paige and Aaliyah both have 25. Ashlyn has 15. KK has 10. Nika has 10. If this is a game where Caden Samuels starts hitting shots, like, yeah, there's a path towards UConn winning this game. I'm not trying to talk like you got no hope, but 
I think it's just realistic that they're probably not going to win. And you just hope that the way that they play and the way that they perform gives you something to build on heading to the NCAA tournament. And then by the time you might end up facing them again, they're no longer in the tournament and you still are. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I think you're right. There's a path. There's some things that the South Carolina team doesn't do as well as they did last year, their defense for one. And then without Cardoso, I like, I would say it's probably going to be a little bit of a step back on the defensive end for them. I mean, they let Vanderbilt score 74. They let LSU score 70. They've struggled with their three-point shooting the last couple games. So if UConn can hope that that holds on for, you know, one more, two more games, that'll help them. But, yeah, I think it's more about how the game goes than who comes up in the win column. We were talking about this off-air and more in the context of the NCAA tournament, but it's just so hard to make any predictions about this team simply because we have no idea what they are ever going to look like on a given night. We thought they were going to handle Notre Dame pretty easily and the team didn't show up the way we thought they would and they got blown out. And we thought that, you know, Marquette and Creighton after the the Christmas break could give them some trouble and they blew both of those teams out by 30 and 40 points. So... A lot of it depends what UConn team shows up. If good UConn goes up, then yeah, they could absolutely win this game. And I think they could win this game by some, not a comfort, like a, a 10, 8 to 10 to 15 point margin. Like, I, I think that's possible. I think they could win this game in a close one. And I think they could also lose by 10 or 15 if the bad mm-hmm. team shows up. And it could be even more if the really bad team shows up. It's just so hard to know what this UConn team is going to be on a given night. Yeah, agreed. And they're playing at their best level. Like the ceiling for this team is so high, but also it's very quick that the wheels come off and the floor is also very low. Yeah, and that's what happens when you have four freshmen in the rotation right. and two freshmen <laughs> in the starting lineup. Like there's going to be ups and downs, and we've seen that. Ashlyn, as good as she's been writ large, has had her struggles. KK Arnold's been dealing with some foul trouble and is working through some things. Cadence has kind of fallen out of the rotation a little bit. I thought Ice played really well at Villanova and really didn't play well last night against Eaton Hall. So there's so many factors for this team that have to go right for them to play at the top of their game. I'm, I wouldn't be surprised if in a hostile environment, more things go wrong than go right. Agreed. Agreed. Yeah. Regardless of South Carolina being down their best player, like you still have to play at South Carolina. It's like someone having to come play at UConn. And like we saw yeah. with Notre Dame, I mean, you can you can go in in that environment, but it's hard. Yeah. A $2 beer night at Gamble, too, is different than just a typical <laughs> Gamble. And yes. <laughs> Notre Dame is able to do it. But next week, we will back to talk about that South Carolina game as well as the just as anticipated matchup at Xavier on Wednesday. (laughs) But a week from... Actually, no, we're recording before the Xavier game. I lied. But a week from today, Thursday, the NCAA will have their first seed reveal. It shows if the season ended on that day, what the top 16 teams would be, who would be where, all those sorts of things. Megan, as our resident bracketologist... Where do you have UConn right now, and what kind of your 
bracket outlook for them the rest of the way? Yeah, so right now, granted this is like a week still because I haven't opened it for this week yet, but I mean, UConn themselves hasn't changed much since last week. It's what around them has changed. I had them as the two, uh, the second overall two seed in Albany with Iowa as the one. I expect when we see them on Thursday, we see them somewhere on the two line where that is might fluctuate a little bit with the result of Sunday. I think Sunday's result, it matters a little bit. It doesn't, it's not going to propel them up or down a seed line. I don't think, but it matters a little bit. Um, So I think that matters. I expect we'll see them somewhere on the two line. Where on the two line, it's hard to say right now, but I'd kind of expect that also what we see in this first reveal is going to be pretty indicative of where they're going to end up. Because aside from like, I don't know, they have what, Nova and Creighton one more time, I think. They don't have, and then they'll have the Big East tournament. Like they can make some progress for themselves by, you know, a big win over Creighton, big wins over Nova, but they're not going to have any more opportunities at at, at a really true statement win following this weekend. Um, So their fate beyond this weekend really is going to depend a lot on them handling business where they need to and then what everyone else does. My only ask is that they're in Albany. Yeah, I I think I would be really shocked if this team doesn't end up in Albany. I think they've done enough to position themselves to be on a two-line. Like, I think they're going to get – unless there's, like, a jam with the Pac-12 – but, like, I just – I don't think the way things are right now, like, you're going to have more than three Pac-12 teams on the, the top two lines. So I, I think they're going to be fine in terms of getting to Albany. I think what you want, though, is you want to be in Albany and not have South Carolina as your one. <laughs> yes, that would be perhaps the that's worst what, draw. Yeah, right. Because mm-hmm. South Carolina so, yeah. is pretty much locked up Albany. Yeah, they've locked up that number one seed unless like the wheels fall off or something. I like, I, it, I think at this point it would take a lot for South Carolina not to be the number one overall seed. Yeah, even just not to be a one. In any right. Well, yeah, I mean, I, I, I don't think that's even possible unless they start losing every single game. Yeah, like which isn't <laughs> which is like but... not going to happen in the SEC. <laughs> yeah, but I honestly, so. like I, I think it's the case for someone other than South Carolina to be the number one overall seed is going to be a stretch. But I think you could also argue that it would be a really tough draw for South Carolina. South Carolina could win this game by 45 points, but it would be really tough. South Carolina ends up in Albany and then has UConn in their regional as the home team. Like I think they don't want that either. And you should protect your number one overall seed in my opinion. So like you shouldn't put UConn there, but yeah. Yeah, we've seen the committee over the years is pretty good at using their brain with right. location placing and matchups and all that sort of thing where it isn't the true S curve. And I mean, the seed reveal is one thing. We know that the seed reveal is always got a few elements in it that make it interesting mm-hmm. for uh, <laughs> for for the conversation. Right. But yeah, I, I think it would be more of a a a it, it just wouldn't be fair to South Carolina to throw UConn in their region. 
Yeah, exactly. And I think UConn likes that too, right? Because like, I still think they're going to end up in Albany. Like, I'll be shocked if they don't end up playing in Albany when we get to the real thing, where they're going to put them on Thursday, who knows. But like, when we get to the real thing, I'd be shocked if they aren't in Albany. And I think the way things are shaking out right now, like that indicates a pretty good chance that your one is going to be Iowa. And if it's not Iowa, it's probably NC State. Like, I mean, things could change a fair amount, but we're at a point in the season now where it's like you kind of know what team is in the group that's got a shot at that one line. Can you imagine NC State? Their last two times being a one oh my seed. God. We're never going to hear the end of that if that happens. <laughs> they end up in the same regional as UConn in the closest regional to UConn. That would be, that would be really funny. That would be yeah. hilarious. <laughs> but, I mean, like, it feels likely that it'll be Iowa. And so I think that breaks really well for UConn. That's a great matchup for them. Sign me up for that every single day of the week because then they right. get to play whatever nine seed beats Iowa. Yeah, like they honestly at this point might prefer to be on the two line because you've got a great shot at being that ship of Iowa. The world deserves another Paige Caitlin Clark matchup because we only got one, but if that happens, I really don't think it'll end up happening because either UConn or Iowa is going to lose before that Elite Eight. Yep. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but maybe it'll happen. I, I don't, it almost makes it like more likely that they'll end up there because, like, I think. The committee's also not stupid and like knows what's gonna draw eyes and like everyone wants that matchup, right? Oh my god. The idea of Yukon fans, Iowa fans, and South Carolina fans all in Albany together, a city where there's, there's not that many do. there's yeah, there's not enough bars in Iowa or in Albany. Well probably not in Iowa either, but in Albany to accommodate that. <laughs> yeah, there's that would be something else. <laughs> Throw Tennessee in one of those regionals, too, just to really oh mix gosh. it up. <laughs> Tennessee's going to worry about making the tournament at first. <laughs> yeah, yeah, as if they're going to get out of the second round. <laughs> yeah. They're, gonna but, like, they're just going to flat out make the field. Like, that's a conversation. At the yes. point, they're like the last four in, so, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, we are... No, Sunday will be a week a month and a week from a selection Sunday. So coming in yeah. still at the end of the regular season. Right. And there's another seed reveal two weeks after the first one, I believe as well. So we'll get another better idea, you know, before conference tournaments start. Yep. And as we know, it doesn't impact UConn much. What happens in the conference tournament for them. Right. It's all about as long as they elsewhere. Win. Yeah. Yeah, losing hurts them, but yeah, as long as they win, it doesn't really do much for them. How they win regular matters, season. I think, like, yeah. Regular season, I wouldn't be stunned if they drop one, still, as yeah. we've seen. Yeah. This team just really being up and down, but they just always seem to figure it out for the tournament. I mean, last year, they won every game in February, I think it was, by like a margin of 30 points total. Right. And then in the AAC, or the, oh man, the Big East tournament, they won by an average of 30 points. So yeah, but yeah, I think doing something like that will help them a little bit. Like you blow the wheels off of Creighton again in that, you know, well next week and then again in that biggest tournament, those wins will help you. They're not going to yeah. do like what beating a full strength South Carolina team, which they wouldn't do, probably do anyway, but <laughs> what that would do, but it, it will help you to like blow out Creighton. Well, on that note, that's going to do it for this episode of Chasing Perfection. Thanks for listening.